in the developed world, democracy is generally seen as a good thing. Even those countries that don't actually run like a democracy will still either call themselves a democracy or a republic. But if you take democracy and you boil it down so it becomes concentrated, what are you left with? Do you think it becomes more pure or does it become poisonous? Can you have too much of what most people would agree is a good thing? In the end, it's our ideals, our values that built America. From the crew of Apollo 8. Values that allowed us to forge a nation. We close with good night. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. And God bless all of you. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. All of you on the and therein lies the road to war. This is History in the Making. I'm Rob Sims, and you're listening to Episode 12, Lynchpins and Puppeteers. Themistocles was on his way to Persia. He had been kicked out of Athens, he had run out of friends in Greece, and the only place he had left to turn was Persia. Now, although originally he had written a letter to Xerxes promising him to help, Xerxes was dead. Xerxes had been assassinated. His son had actually taken over now, and so there was a power shift in Persia. So Themistocles, as he was sailing east, he had not met the king. He had no prior relationship with him. He just had to hope that he could convince Artaxerxes that he had been a friend to his father, that he had been a friend to Xerxes, and then Artaxerxes would take him into his court. He made it across the sea after some trouble in Naxos that we mentioned, but when he finally landed in Asia Minor, his trouble was really just getting started. I mean, there was a price on his head here, too. This was Themistocles. This was the man that had helped to foil the Persian invasion of Greece. So if he could get to the king, if he could get to Artaxerxes, he had a chance at survival. But there was this price on his head, and it wouldn't be easy to get there. So what he did is that he disguised himself as a woman. Not a costume and a dress, but rather he disguised his vehicle like a woman. You see, the Persians were very jealous of their women. If they were transporting maybe their wife or even a slave from place to place, they would often carry them in a covered tent so you couldn't see who was inside. And so this is what Themistocles did. He had his followers put him in this covered tent and then carry him all the way to the palace. And every time they were questioned, they would always say that they were escorting a Greek woman who was very beautiful and very fair, but also very frail. Now, they made it all the way to the palace like this, but when they arrive at the palace, their trouble isn't over yet. There's no promise of safety for Themistocles and really his entire following here either. Frankly, just to walk into this place must have been terrifying if you weren't directly invited and knew that you were already in favor with the king. It's a little tough to nail down exactly which room that Themistocles met Artaxerxes in, for me at least. You see, the Persians had this problem. They had this temple complex, but they kept running out of room for their treasury. And so there'd be a big audience hall where the king would meet people, but then eventually the treasury in another room would become too small because Persia was growing so wealthy. And so the current audience hall would be converted into a storage room, and a new, bigger audience hall would have to be built. It's a crazy problem to have. It's a decent gamble that the room where Themistocles met Artaxerxes was perhaps 70 meters or a little over 200 feet long. In each direction, it was this giant square full of columns, could have been as high as 60 feet tall. Themistocles is brought into this room, and he's standing before Artaxerxes, before the king. He's standing there in silence, a wanted man in Persia, a wanted man in Greece, someone who has run out of friends, and he is simply standing there waiting to be spoken to. The king finally asked him to speak, and this whole conversation has to take place through a translator, but... The reply that Themistocles gives Artaxerxes, I'm just going to read to you directly. Just for a little context, it's a little bit long, and the main 
sticking point that Themistocles has on why he should have favor with Artaxerxes, why he helped out Artaxerxes' father, Xerxes, is that when the Persian army was leaving Greece, he didn't go cut the bridges that were connected to the Hellespont. He's claiming that he let Xerxes and the army leave, that he convinced the rest of the Greeks to let them go. Which is hilarious because that's the complete opposite of what was supposed to happen. Themistocles wanted to cut the bridges so that they could destroy Xerxes and his entire army. It was Aristides who convinced him not to do such a stupid thing. But that's basically the linchpin of Themistocles' argument on how he saved Xerxes and the entire Persian army. So with all that in mind, here's his reply to Artaxerxes the king. He's recorded as saying this, O king, I am Themistocles the Athenian, driven into banishment by the Greeks. The evils that I have done to the Persians are numerous, but my benefits do them yet greater. In withholding the Greeks from pursuit, so soon as the deliverance of my own country allowed me to show kindness also to you. I come with a mind suited to my present calamities, prepared alike for favors or for anger, to welcome your gracious reconciliation or to depreciate your wrath. Take my own countrymen for your witnesses of the services that I have done for Persia and make use of this occasion to show the world your virtue rather than satisfy your indignation. If you save me, you will save your suppliant. If otherwise, you will destroy an enemy of the Greeks. Basically what he's saying is that I know you might want to kill me to revenge everything that I did against you and your empire, but realize that the Greeks also want to kill me. If you kill me, you'll be doing them a favor. If you spare me, you'll win a powerful ally and also show your virtue to the rest of the nations that will hear about this. Artaxerxes doesn't say anything. He lets Themistocles just sit there in suspense, and Artaxerxes leaves. Themistocles has no reason to believe that this works. It's a great answer. It's a great reply. But as the guards hear about who Themistocles is, they start to treat him rough. It's obvious that they hate him, that they want to do harm to Themistocles. The only thing keeping him in check is that for now, he's a guest of Artaxerxes. The night passes, and for Themistocles, I imagine it must have been a tough one. He has no guarantee of safety, but for Artaxerxes, we see what was actually going through his mind. When he leaves this court, he goes to his private friends and he starts bragging that Themistocles the Athenian has come to Persia. Artaxerxes is ecstatic. After he tells all his friends, he goes back, he has a couple drinks, and then he yells out in the night that he has Themistocles the Athenian. He even makes this prayer to his gods that all the Greeks will continue to abuse and then expel the bravest men amongst them. The next morning, he comes back into his court, and he summons everyone back to him, including Themistocles. Themistocles returns, and he's standing there silent before the king, probably expecting to be killed. When Artaxerxes says, you know, I owe you some money. There's a price on your head, and for you coming into this courtroom and effectively turning yourself in, I owe you the reward for your capture. He asked Themistocles what he wants. What do you want me to do with Greece? I mean, so far it's been pretty typical for powerful Greek people to fall out of favor there and go to Persia for help. Two of the Spartan kings have done it already. And so I imagine Artaxerxes is expecting to hear Themistocles say, put me in your court, make me one of your higher officials, maybe give me some support from an army and we can go conquer Greece together. Instead, what Themistocles says is he makes this comparison, kind of flattering to the Persians and also cautious in his own speech. Remember, all this is taking place through a translator. And so what Themistocles says is that speech is very similar to an elaborate Persian carpet. When it was rolled up and short, you couldn't see all the images and appreciate it for its beauty and intricacy. But when you start to unroll one of these carpets, when you take your time and look at it, it's rich. You can appreciate it. And so what Themistocles is saying here is give me time. Give me time to learn the Persian language. Give me time 
so that we don't have to have these conversations through an interpreter so that I can better understand your culture. And Artaxerxes appreciates this. He grants the Mystically shelter for a year, and in this time, both in the year and past it, he really starts to win the favor of Artaxerxes, to the point where whole towns, cities, are given to Themistocles to run. Themistocles adopts parts of the Persian culture, he learns their language, and in doing so, he becomes close with the king. He goes on the private hunting trips with the king. He's part of the inner circle. And this makes many other people jealous. The Persians' officials don't want some runaway Greek who did the Persian Empire real harm to be in the inner circle of the king. And so Themistocles has to play this continual game of politics. Fortunately, it's Themistocles. This is what he does best. At one point, he gets on the bad side of this local governor, not only because everybody is jealous of him, but he goes to tour this one city and finds this Athenian treasure, something that had been stolen from Athens when the Persians sacked the place. And so he has it sent back to Athens. This, as you can probably guess, really irritates that Persian governor, and he threatens to write a letter to the king. So what Themistocles does is he goes to the concubines of this Persian governor, and he starts bribing them. He hands out money to the concubines so that these women are able to shift the opinion of this Persian governor. At another point, somebody just outright tries to assassinate him, but he's able to escape. So by adopting the customs of the Persians, winning the favor with Artaxerxes, and then walking that fine line that he is so good at between gambling everything and winning favor with the right people, he stays powerful and comfortable in the Persian court. But really, what else would you expect? It's Themistocles. Themistocles is able to live like this for a number of years. This is where we're going to leave him, actually. Very comfortable in the court of Persia. Because Artaxerxes doesn't have the same desires as his father Xerxes. For now, Artaxerxes wants nothing to do with Greece. And so it's really easy for Themistocles to solely devote himself to Persia without directly harming Greece. Because you see... The problems that Greece was facing right now were not external. Greece was developing problems all on its own. You see, something was happening to the Delian League, even though this started out as an alliance of a bunch of different city-states all willing and able to fight Persia together. Athens was turning it into something different. When one of the members of the alliance of the Delian League decided they no longer wanted to be in the League, Athens wouldn't let them leave. They would go to war with this city-state that was technically, on paper, their ally, and make them stay. So what was happening is that you had this group of allies, and then someone decided they want to leave. Athens would defeat them, and suddenly they become a subject. Athens is converting this league into what is starting to look like, especially to Sparta, an empire. The most recent example of this was Thasos. After Thasos tried to leave and was defeated, not only did they have to continue to pay tribute, but they had to give up their fleet. They had to give up their navy, they had to tear down the walls around their city, and they had to give their gold mines to Athens. And so before they fell, they asked Sparta to help. They asked Sparta to go to war with Athens, and based on the way Athens was changing the league into an empire of their own, Sparta agreed but it was a secret, and Athens had no idea. While they're preparing for war, though, before they can get their troops out, before their hoplites can form up and march against Athens, something happens. In 464, this earthquake hits. This devastating, massive earthquake that smashes Sparta. Some of the numbers we have are obviously inflated. We have numbers of 20,000 casualties in Sparta, but even if that's double what it actually is, let's say it was 10,000, let's say it was 5,000, Sparta has this tiny population of elites, and so any unexpected fatalities is devastating to them. Some of the sources point out that it was the youths, the young people, that were hit the hardest by this earthquake, and this is double jeopardy for Sparta, because not only does this mean people die, but their future generations, their future warriors, are dead. 
just to really underline this, at one point, someone asked Sparta about their walls. You see, Sparta didn't have any walls. They didn't even try to build them. It was just how they kept their city. And when somebody asked Sparta why they didn't have any walls, it was mentioned that the young men and their warriors were the city walls. Their spears were their battlements. They didn't need walls. They had soldiers. And now a lot of them were unexpectedly dead. Just to add to this danger for Sparta, though, not only do they have a bunch of unexpected deaths while they're secretly preparing for a war with the superpower in Greece, Athens, there's another problem here. Remember, the vast, vast majority of the Spartan population aren't Spartans. They're helots. And I know we've talked about helots a little bit already, but there's a couple things we need to underline here. We've talked about how terrible it would be to be a helot, how Spartans would declare war on them annually and could kill them with impunity, but even more than the physical harm that the Spartans inflicted on the helots, there was a psychological aspect to this. You see, the Spartan heritage does not originate in Greece. They migrated from the north a couple hundred years before this, and the way the Greeks understood it is that the Spartans had their heritage from the north, from Hercules, actually, but they weren't local to where they lived. You see, the Helots were the natural inhabitants of that place, but since the Spartans came down and conquered it, in the Spartans' mind, now this was their land, and the Helots were the foreigners. And so if you were a Helot, you were living in what would have been your ancestor's home, considered a foreigner by these people that came in and took this land from you. There was a hatred here that ran deep. The Spartans rubbed it in their face, too. Something they would do at this time was that the Spartans would drink, but very lightly, very moderately. But then while they were all sitting around drinking their watered-down wine at their community dinners, they would bring in a helot, and they would give them wine, straight, undiluted wine. Remember, when Cleomenes apparently went crazy a couple years before this, and either committed suicide or was secretly killed in the night, depending on who you believe, drinking straight wine was seen as a sign of his madness. And they would give these helots straight wine and then get them really drunk and make them dance on the tables and just act like idiots. And then while the helots are stumbling, dancing on the tables, can probably barely hold themselves up, they grab their use, the Spartan use, and point to the helots as an example of what not to do, the dangers of alcohol, and the opposite of what a Spartan should act like. Aristotle's describing the helots, and he says that the helots are ones that would gladly eat the Spartans raw. These are the helots. They outnumber the Spartan elite by maybe seven to one, and they are waiting for their chance to retake their land and to kill off the Spartans, who have done nothing but harass and suppress them for centuries. And this earthquake is their chance. The helots begin to form up. There are instant revolts that happen with this earthquake. This is the chance for the helots to retake their own land. And so Sparta realizes it has a serious existential threat on its hands. It sends out calls for help to the other Greek city-states, and Athens, being an ally of Sparta, on paper at least, decides to help. Simon leads a bunch of Athenian hoplites to Sparta, and this is really helpful for Sparta too because the Athenians are really good at siege, Spartans are much more used to fighting in the field, just taking the battle right to the enemy soldiers. And so Simon is looking to help the Spartans. They are still allies based on the treaty that was made when the Persians invaded, almost 20 years before this. The thing is, though, Simon and his Athenians show up, and they're looking to help, and Sparta doesn't trust them. For one, Sparta is legitimately preparing to go to war with Athens, and who knows, Athens might have found out. Sparta's not sure. And then on top of that, they just don't trust the Athenians. If the Athenians are expanding their power, who knows what the Athenians might do. They could go join the Helots. They could go join the rebels, take down Sparta, and then who would be left to challenge the Athenians? They would stand alone. So the Spartans 
send the Athenians away. They say, we really appreciate you coming, but you know what? We've actually got this. You can go ahead and go home. And they might have been able to play this off, except they didn't send anybody else home. A lot of Greek city-states showed up, and yet the Athenians were the only ones that were asked to leave. It's an embarrassment. And this is tough for Simon, too. He's the linchpin in Athenian and Spartan political relations, and he put his neck out there for Sparta, and Sparta didn't want anything to do with him. This not only hurts Simon politically, but the Athenians are so offended that they break off the treaty with Sparta. And on one hand, this really shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, Athens has always been the democratically run city of the people, whereas Sparta has been this tightly controlled system that the people buy into. They're an oligarchy. It's two different city-states. But Athens is becoming more bold in its measure of democracy. You see, there are two men in Athens that are beginning to move into the limelight. One is already there. He's present. The people know his name. The other is known for his status, but he's not active. For now, he's kind of in the shadows of the political scene. Now, the first man, the one that you would recognize if you were in Athens, was a man named Ephialtes. We don't have a lot of information on where he comes from, what his background is, who he is, how he actually came to be a prominent statesman in Athens. What we do know is that he's leading the attack on the Areopagus, essentially the high court, the high council of Athens. It consists of a bunch of ex-archons or ex-leaders of the city, and he sees it as limiting the people's power. You see, one of the jobs of the Areopagus that Solon had left them back in episode two was that they were to be the guards of the constitution. They guarded the laws. They were the highest court in Athens. But this limited what the people could do because the Areopagus kept him in check. And so Ephialtes was saying that this needs to be abolished. This is how we can expand the power of the people. The other man that was behind him in this is named Pericles. Now, Pericles is from a rich family. We have a little bit more about his background, where he comes from. He was well off. He was an aristocrat. He was well connected to the blue bloods of Athens. And he had a lot to lose. And so for now, his involvements in politics are pretty minor. Ephialtes is the one that's leading the charge against the Areopagus. Now, this is kind of a difficult part for us because, frankly, we don't really know exactly what the Areopagus did. We knew that they were supposed to defend the Constitution. We knew that they act as an upper court. But outside of that, we're not really sure what their responsibilities were. The general vibe here, though, does closely align with something that popped up quite a bit in the late 1800s. You see, in the late 1800s, there's a couple writers, at least, that we can pull from that make this comparison. They make the comparison between the Areopagus of Athens and our own Supreme Court. What they're saying is that the reason the Athenians did not like the Areopagus is that it's a very small body that has a whole lot of power with no democratic influence and poorly defined bounds. So really, to understand how people might have felt about the Areopagus, we need to look at the Supreme Court for a little bit. Okay, so we are about to dive into some pretty divisive stuff. And if you can, try not to think about too much the decisions that are being made here. Think about just simply how big they are. No matter how you feel about civil rights, hopefully we're all on the same page there, or abortion gay marriage, things that are still hotly debated in society today. Instead, simply think about the ramifications of these issues. Think about how people approach them. Think about how much they matter to some people. And yet, it's a group of nine that decides whether these things are legal or not. In 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson determined that segregation was not in contradiction of the 14th Amendment. And it wasn't until 1954 that Brown versus Board of Education determined that segregation in public schools was actually unconstitutional. Racism is a subtle issue, and so it's difficult to really definitively say that things have changed compared to back then. But I think that most people would agree things have at least gotten better. And most people, if you ask them on the street at least, would condemn racism. Most people would be on the same page on this. Now think about Roe versus Wade. In 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that the constitutional right to privacy 
also covered a woman's decision to have an abortion. That was a little over 40 years ago. Now, I'm going to give you a second here, and I want you to think about, if you had to guess, what would you say the approval of abortion is in the United States? If you were to walk up to somebody on the street and ask them, do you consider yourself pro-life or pro-choice? What do you think it would be? How close of an issue do you think this is? A Gallup poll in May of 2016 shows that 47% of people answer this question with pro-choice. 46 identify as pro-life. And there hasn't really been some big change recently that has shifted opinion. It's been about 50-50 since 1998, over the past almost 20 years. And yet, thanks to the Supreme Court, this has been legal for 40 Now, I don't want you to think I'm on a soapbox or anything here. I am actually sitting down. What I want you to think about is, is this democratic or not? If we're divided 50-50 over huge issues, and they've been legal for 40 years, and full disclosure here, the data I have only goes back to 1996, so I'm not sure what the trends were before that. But if there really is a split this big, It's not a democratic process. That's obvious for anybody to see. And so I think this is what Athens was feeling. They were feeling that their own democratic process was not fully recognized in the way that it should be, that the Areopagus was this high court passing down laws. Something they might have said is very similar to what John Scott, a man who I believe was a lawyer in Virginia in 1895, He's disagreeing with the decision that the court has made, and he says that, quote, this is one of the deplorable consequences of entrusting political power to courts and judges, as they are ever seeking to widen and extend their jurisdiction, which acts as aggression, piously, they call law, end quote. What Scott is pointing out here is that if we think of the law as a shield between the masses, as Solon described, as he intended to be in Athens What you need to ask yourself is who is holding the shield. And so to deal with this problem, the Athenians vote to curtail the abilities of the Areopagus by absorbing all those powers into their own courts. Now, the local, smaller courts have become more powerful. The Areopagus has basically been reduced to a homicide court, as far as our sources tell us. And what we are left with is our final form of democracy in Athens, at least as it concerns our story. This is democracy unbridled. It's broken out of the arena. It can do virtually anything it wants. And they had plenty of ideas. One of the people that was really starting to come out from behind the curtain right now and help to stoke the fires of this bold new democracy was Pericles. You see, after Ephialtes was able to champion this last push of the democracy and greatly reduce the abilities of the Areopagus, he was seen as a threat. It's implied in some of the ancient sources that people tried to bribe him, to talk him down, to make him less of a radical democrat, but he refused to budge. He couldn't be bought, and so instead, he was assassinated. Ephialtes comes blazing onto the scene, makes this crazy change, and then an assassin's blade sends him to the history books. So Pericles begins to come out of the shadows. Now his natural rival here would be Simon, not only because he's the leader of the aristocratic party, but there's also quite a bit of bad blood here. Remember, Simon's the son of Miltiades, the same Miltiades who I think we've mentioned more than anyone else on this podcast now, who led the Athenians into battle during the Battle of Marathon and made that first great victory against the Persians. But then afterwards, when he tried to go do some missions all on his own, it didn't go very well. Athens got mad at him, and he was thrown in jail where he died of infection. The person that led that case against Miltiades, against the father of Simon, was the father of Pericles. So Pericles and Simon are left facing each other and are basically the antithesis of each other in almost every way. Simon is extremely wealthy with all of his successful campaigns and is leading the aristocratic party, 
He's pushing for a closer alliance with Sparta, whereas Pericles is the opposite. Pericles doesn't necessarily want anything to do with Sparta, isn't really involved in politics too much at this point, and is historical enemies with the family of Simon. So Pericles has his work cut out for him. You see, even though Simon brought the Athenians to Sparta to try to help after that earthquake and was shot down, he's still opening up his lands to people. He's still feeding everyone around him. He's still handing out money, handing out clothes, and that's a guaranteed way of staying on the people's good side. And Pericles, though he's wealthy, he has enough to live a comfortable life, he's not extravagantly wealthy like Simon, and so he can't put on the same feast. He can't just hand out cash to make himself popular. But he needs some type of safety net here. And so the wealth that he taps is the wealth of Athens. Simon might put on a party, but then Pericles would go and say, you know what, I think we should up the pay for our jurors. Everybody should be paid more. And they'd pass it. And so Pericles was using the money of Athens to make the people rich. And Pericles is an interesting guy. When you think of some great speaker, someone who can really rattle the bones of the listeners and bend them to their will, as Thucydides straight up says Pericles does, you probably think of someone who's extremely energetic in their speaking. Uh, Somebody like Hitler, if you've seen one of his speeches, obviously a terrible person, but knows how to give a speech, knows how to captivate the audience and like speak wildly. Pericles speaks like a law professor. A conversation with Themistocles probably would have been a little bit like a conversation with Mussolini, someone very excited, someone who is full of himself. But a conversation with Pericles would probably be like walking into one of your college professor's offices and he's sitting in his armchair and calmly starts explaining these things to you that just amaze you. Pericles was very even in his speech. He was very methodical in what he would do. He even took the same road to and from the assembly. And often he would try not to speak, but he would pass off his ideas to other people. It's only now that he's really starting to come into the limelight, but he's reserved about it. He doesn't want to look like a Themistocles and get himself ostracized. And the strategy works for Pericles because you see, people were getting tired of Sparta, They are moving into the arms of Spartan enemies like Argos. And so the natural next move was to get rid of the person who loved Sparta. Simon was ostracized. Now, it was really simply Pericles and this brave new democracy. And they wasted no time getting started. One of the first things they did was decide to build walls. Not just walls around the city, they already had those. Long walls. Walls that would stretch nearly four miles from Athens all the way down to the limestone peninsula that was Piraeus. Athens started building these walls, and what it started to look like was a fortress. Bethany Hughes, in her really beautiful book, The Hemlock Cup, says this, that Athens started to resemble the great cities of the Near East, Babylon, Nineveh, superstates protected by a defensive statement visible for miles around. What these walls meant is that Athens was no longer vulnerable to siege, to attack really of any kind. They had huge walls around them, so you couldn't attack them directly. And since these walls to Piraeus are going up, you couldn't starve them out either. They bring in most of their food anyway. Their land isn't capable of feeding themselves. So if they go under siege, it's just business as usual. The food has to come in through the port anyway. But now you can't attack it, and you don't have a navy that can compare with theirs. And Athens is proud of what's happening here. They're not subtle about it. This play comes out called Prometheus Bound. Now, this is the same Prometheus that you've heard of if you're familiar with Greek mythology, the one who steals fire and gives it to mankind, and then as a punishment, he's chained up on this mountain and a bird, Zeus's eagle, flies down and pecks his liver out every day. And the play follows this story pretty closely, but if you start reading through it, you notice something apparent. It rails against Zeus as this tyrant, as this leader uncompassionate to those that he's ruling. What this is, is an attack on tyranny and, by default, a support of democracy. Michael Lloyd in his book, 
Aeschylus, one of the prominent Greek poets at the time, calls this play a hymn to democracy. And not only is it just a theme in the play, not only does Prometheus rail against Zeus and everybody probably nods their head about what a terrible tyrant Zeus is, but also for the introduction of the chorus, you'll remember the chorus is 12 people, probably for this play, might have been 15, and they usually accompany one of the three actors. On the stage, they sing, they reply, they can play the part of many different people. And in this play, they're playing the part of gods on the mountain. Just not Zeus, some of the minor gods. And the way they come into the scene is flying. Not kidding, there are 12 people attached to this flying chariot that's being held up by a crane. Some of the big construction cranes in Athens could pick up blocks that weighed 12 tons. These ones that they would use for the play, they were smaller, but they were nimble. And so this group of 12 people could all get on a flying chariot and then come soaring in from backstage, singing about what a terrible tyrant Zeus is the whole time. This play is a hymn not only to democracy, but to innovation, to technology. This is the biggest crane used in the Greek plays. But they don't just stop at theater. It's not just words. They put their money where their mouth is. You see, right now, Egypt is being run by Persia, but there are revolts going on. Egypt is trying to win back its independence, and Athens decides to help. They send some of their soldiers down to Egypt to support this revolt against Persia. What this revolt in Egypt means, though, is that Greece is no longer separate from Persia for the past decade. They haven't really taken as much direct action against Persia, especially in the last few since Simon's been gone. But now that Egypt is revolting against Persia and Athens has decided to help, Athens is brought screaming back into the picture for Persia. The king of Persia decides that something needs to be done, and so he calls on the person in his empire, answerable to him, that probably knows the Athenians best. He calls on Themistocles. Artaxerxes ends the peaceful life of Themistocles. Themistocles has to make a choice now. Either he has to stay with Persia and go fight Athens, or he has to somehow abandon Persia, but he still can't go back to Athens. There's still a price on his head. Plutarch tells us that when he's faced with this choice, he first made a sacrifice to the gods. He then called all of his friends together, and once all of his friends were together, He said his goodbyes, and he drank poison. Themistocles decides to end his life rather than go back to fight Greece. Now, I do have to say that Thucydides tells a slightly different story here. He says that right around this time, Themistocles actually dies of disease. But frankly, I have to go with Plutarch. I mean, it's Themistocles. It would just absolutely bum me out if this is the way that such a man ended. Themistocles is an interesting guy. No matter how his death actually occurs, I think he's one of the most interesting people in Greek history. He's a gambler. He's extremely confident in himself, but he also needs to be admired, needs to have public praise. I think in the end, Themistocles usually did look out for himself first. He was his own number one, but he usually tried to make it so that he could better Athens in the process. He's an incredible character, and the rivalry between him and Aristides, and how each of them tried to deal with the other while also respecting each other, is something that absolutely enthralls me. Despite the tragedy of Themistocles, though, Athens doesn't have time to sit around. Not only are they busy on the east, they also look to their west. You see, something that's easy to forget is that We're talking a lot about Athens here and Sparta, and then we bring in Persia occasionally, but there are a ton of little city-states everywhere, and they're constantly shuffling and reshuffling for power. And so, two of these city-states that aren't really getting along right now are Megara and Corinth. Both of these are Spartan allies, but they're all allies with Sparta, not necessarily each other. Sparta runs the show. And so, within the Spartan alliance... This fight kicks up, Corinth and Megara, both of which are to the west of Athens. Now, in what is essentially a border dispute here, Corinth gets the better of Megara. Megara starts losing, and so Megara decides to turn to the Athenians for help. The Athenians are all too happy to help. 
You see, Megara is in this really strategic location. Remember, the way Greece is laid out is that you have Athens, which is more on the mainland of Greece, and then there's this small isthmus that goes and connects to this big landmass, the Peloponnese. And on that, the Peloponnese is Sparta. And this small isthmus is where Corinth is. And so you have this big power, Sparta, its strong ally, Corinth, and right between all of these enemies of Athens and Athens is Megara. So when Megara wants help, Athens is happy to provide it. They send a garrison to Megara. They start building walls in Megara that connect all the way down to the sea. Now, Athens has a buffer against Sparta. It has a buffer against Corinth. But such a bold move cannot be ignored. War is declared by Sparta. And at first, though, as is the Spartan way, they let others do their fighting for them when they can. So most of the fighting takes place between Corinth and Athens. They fight a couple battles. There's one where the Corinthians and the Athenians fight, and it's really pretty close. And so once the Corinthians leave, both sides claim victory. The Athenians set up their own monument on the battlefield, and the Corinthians go back home. But once they get home, all the old men and the seniors in Corinth start making fun of the army. They say, are you kidding? You're just going to come all the way back here? Go back there and build a monument of victory for yourself. Claim victory. They shame the army into going back, but then once they go back to the battlefield, the Athenians see them and whip them. The Athenians generally get the upper hand here, and so it takes a couple years, but eventually the Spartans have to come out themselves. This war that kicked off when Corinth and Athens started fighting and Megara decided to join Athens is known as the First Peloponnesian War. It's kind of the, the warm-up for the real Peloponnesian War that will happen a couple decades after this. So we're going to breeze through it a little bit because there's a lot of fighting, but nothing really changes at first. You see, the way this works is that when the Spartans come out, and before the Athenians and Spartans actually meet in battle, while all the Athenians are maybe lined up or camped out, Simon comes walking up. Simon had heard about this battle, and he's there to go and give his support to Athens. But he's not welcomed. You see, the problem that people have with Simon, especially the enemies of Simon and the friends of Pericles, is that he's so friendly with Sparta. To them, he's a traitor in their midst. They don't want him there when they're fighting Sparta, because who knows what he might do. The Athenians don't want him around. The council orders him to leave. But before Simon does... He goes up to his friends and he tells them, listen, right now is when we need to prove our alliance with Athens. Show your allegiance on the battlefield. Apparently when he leaves, his friends take his armor and they set it right there beside them in the phalanx, in the lines, and then fight with Simon's armor right there in the middle of them. And this is a vicious battle, not only because it's against Sparta, but because most people fighting for Athens have something to prove here. Simon's friends are trying to prove that they're loyal to Athens, and Pericles is trying to outshine their loyalty on the battlefield. There's this big fight, and the Spartans win, but they take so many losses that they have to pull back to Sparta. And when they do, the Athenians realize that the Spartans are so badly injured, they can go around raiding the coast with impunity. They have this giant navy. So they go all around different parts of Greece that Spartan controls or Spartan allies will jump off the ships, raid somewhere, then get back on the ships. And this is how it goes. For a while here, Athens is going around raiding different places. Sparta can't really touch them, but Athens also doesn't have the ability to really defeat Sparta. So they're both just sitting there with their arms crossed, staring at each other from across the ocean. What changes this stalemate is that the support that the Athenians sent to Egypt gets defeated. And so they send more support, and it gets defeated. The expedition in Egypt turns into a disaster, and they take such heavy losses over there that they don't have the manpower to keep up these raids on the Peloponnese. And so what Pericles does is point out that the treasury on Delos, the treasury of the entire Delian League, the entire alliance that everybody's paying into, is no longer safe. They can't keep it on this island anymore. They need to bring it back to Athens. The entire treasury of the Delian League is brought back to Athens. Now, the public reason is because of the Egyptian feat. But you see, Pericles takes the blame 
onto himself. The people don't even like the idea of spending the money of the league in Athens. But what Pericles says is that as long as the Persians are kept at bay, we're doing our job, and then we can do whatever we want with this money. You see, the money doesn't belong to those that give it, but those that it's given to, and that's us. I would imagine this does not win the Athenians many friends, and so it is a very good thing that Simon's ostracism just so happens to run out right now. Remember, it's a dedicated period for 10 years. I know I've said this a million times, but after this 10 years, he can come back. He's welcome into the city. And it's been 10 years. Simon comes back, and since he is such a recognized friend of Sparta, he's able to broker a peace between Sparta and Athens for five years. And not only that, but these Egyptian expeditions of Athens, they've ended in defeat, but they also showed Persia that Athens could raise an army and send it to support their enemies abroad. So a deal is signed with Persia too. Persia has to stay out of the Aegean Sea completely and then can no longer pull tribute from the Ionian Greeks. In turn, the Athenians simply promised to not support any revolts against Persia. And this is impressive. Athens just forced a favorable peace agreement with what is to them the world's superpower. We do have a few rumors about this peace between Sparta and Athens and Simon coming back and the peace with Persia. But frankly, if it's tough to figure out a backroom deal that goes on today in our government, figuring out one from 2,500 years ago is a deep, deep rabbit hole that we do not have time to get into. As we wind down today, I want to take one final look at Athens. You see, they might be licking their wounds from their defeats in Egypt and their defeat to Sparta, but they are still powerful. They are still swelling, and this new democracy is changing things. In an interesting paper by Sheldon Wolin, entitled Democracy, Electoral, and Athenian, he makes the observation that here in modern democracies, in America, for instance, we share in the pageantry of power without actually being in it. And this last presidential election is a perfect example of what he's talking about. Given how hotly contested this thing was, I'm sure you probably had some debates with your friends, maybe your parents, family members. In fact, I kind of hope you did. I mean, this made you really go through your priorities with a fine-tooth comb. But no matter how many debates that you had and who won or who lost, it probably didn't change that much. I mean... In the past five presidential elections, only three of them have been won with both the popular vote and the electoral vote. Now, this is kind of misleading because in the whole history of America, it's only happened four times where someone loses the popular vote and wins the electoral vote. But then you can combine that with the fact that even where we do have quite a bit of power, such as in the local congressional races, that's still a representative government. We elect somebody and they can go to D.C. and represent us but we don't actually participate in the power itself. You see, both in our government as a whole, and especially in this last presidential election, we the people have participated in the pageantry of power without actually wielding it for ourselves. In Athens, the people were the power. If some powerful person in Athens wanted to get something done, they came to the people to have it passed. The people did not go somewhere to create law. But what this meant is that if 51% of the population in Athens wanted something and the other 49% didn't, then there was a whole different type of tyranny taking place. You might not have one person ruling Athens, but you had the tyranny of the majority. What do you do in a population where the government is designed so that the minority will simply be run over? Our democracy is representative. It does not operate freely, but it was also not intended to. We have a democracy, but it's a democracy that takes place within an arena bounded by certain things. The main one being the Bill of Rights. This is the point of the Bill of Rights. If you read through the Federalist Papers, which is largely an explanation of the Constitution and why it's written the way it is, this is the reason for the Bill of Rights. Even Hamilton who reportedly didn't want a Bill of Rights. The reason that Hamilton did not want a Bill of Rights is that he was afraid if we explicitly stated what could or could not be done, then people would assume if it's not written down, it's fair game. The point is that 
we the people are supposed to take place within an arena. Our democracy is intentionally bounded. You see, in all those Supreme Court cases that we went over earlier, those are the cases in which the minority is able to get around the majority. Direct appeals to the law and the bounds of our democracy ensure the safety of the minority. Even if you don't necessarily agree with a specific choice that's been made, you can know that you can use that same system if you are ever tyrannized by the majority. One of the dissenting opinions from one of the Supreme Court briefings I was reading for this, I wish I could remember which one, I looked and looked but couldn't, but the eloquent description that this justice writes down is that some things are simply intended to be beyond the reach of the majority. Thank you for listening to History in the Making. Join me next time where we take Athens to the very peak of its power in this radical new democracy. We see the construction of the Parthenon and we see ideas come flooding into Athens with immigrants, trade goods, wealth. And these ideas begin to challenge the traditional religious beliefs of Athens. Now, I have a couple things for you. First off, keep in mind, this episode, we covered a lot more ground than normal. This was 14 years, so we're starting to pick up the pace a little bit. Also, although I normally keep all my sources on my website, hitmpodcast.com, where you can see the vast majority of the books and papers that I use for this, at least, for this particular episode, given everything we talked about with the Supreme Court, with the Gallup poll... I'm going to include all of those specific sources that I mentioned in the show notes if you want to do any reading on your own on that. Finally, if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. only takes a couple minutes, or just simply tell your friends and family. That is how this show continues to grow. I greatly appreciate your interest, and also if you have any questions on the show or really anything else, feel free to send me an email. My email is rob at hitmpodcast.com. All that being said, I do hope to hear from you, but either way, I will talk to you in two weeks.